This episode is sponsored by a donor to Global Wellness Institute, or GWI. GWI is a 501c3 nonprofit organization with a mission to empower wellness worldwide by educating the public and private sectors about preventative health and wellness. GWI's research, programs, and initiatives have been instrumental in the growth of the $4.5 trillion U.S. dollar wellness economy and in uniting the health and wellness industries. Visit globalwellnessinstitute.org. On this episode, we have Michelle Navarez. Michelle grew up fascinated by different world religions, and after graduating from Bryn Mawr College, she spent a number of years in Nepal, where she and a group of students founded a university for the study of Buddhism. She earned a degree there herself and came back to the U.S., launching a career as a human resources professional. She has now become a partner in imparting the teachings of Daniel Goldman's landmark book entitled Emotional Intelligence through a company called Goldman EI. Michelle, thank you so much for being on our show. My pleasure. Thank you so much for having me. That's really great. Um, I did want to ask you, um, your name is spelled with one L. And I'm accustomed to seeing it with two L's. And I wondered if there was a good origin story there. Well, there is a story there. Um, I'll keep it brief. Um, (laughs) I only was given two names at my birth, Sandra Carizales. And and I didn't have a middle name. And uh, my mom remarried when I was a child because my dad died when I was a baby. And, um, And I had a chance. Uh, to add a middle name because my last name was changing and because the man she married adopted me. And so I had a babysitter named Michelle (laughs) at the time who I loved. And so that became my middle name I chose. And I chose the spelling, not knowing that there were two L's and I think I was five. So that's the story. (laughs) I love it. That's really great. I'm so glad you shared that. (laughs) (laughs) And so you were born in Wyoming. Yes, yeah, I was in a place called Powell, Wyoming, in the Bighorn Basin. Got you. And then you had some uh, movements as a child before ending up at uh, Bryn Mawr College, just outside of Philadelphia. I did indeed. I um, grew up mainly in Billings, Montana. And then when I was in high school, my parents transitioned to Colorado. And I did a study abroad in Spain um, at that time as a, as a high school student for, for about six months, Mm. graduated early from high school and um, ended up at Colby, did a semester in France and then resituated in Bryn Mawr. So quite a lot of movement at that time. Yeah, that was. Um, What were some of the things you enjoyed reading in high school? Hmm. Really liked Rilke, um, and um, of love and other difficulties. Um, I, I liked James Joyce. Um, you know, Richard Brodigan. Um, <laughs> just kind of off the beaten path. Um, yeah. I'm impressed with the, <laughs> with Joyce. I don't think I could have grasped more than Dubliners in high school. I'm not sure that I did. I, yeah. And I love Jamaica Kincaid um, and her work and her fiction. Also, I would say uh, very interested early on in religion 
primary religious texts. When you say that, like what type of work, like Vedas, Upanishads, or like Torah, Kabbalah? Yes. Yeah. 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 (laughs) I mean, it, it just, you know, just from early days, being very interested in why people, you know, believe what they believe, and then how do their beliefs impact how they show up in the world? Mm. Um, that's been a central question for me for a really long time. Um, when what, I was very young, that was kind of burgeoning quite young. What do you think sparked that? Was there an experience you had or exposure to several different religions? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I grew up, like I said, in kind of a rural place. And, um, and so on my mom's side, um, they're Danish, Dutch, English, and on my dad's side, they're Mexican, right. and my biological dad. And um, I was very close to his family, and and so I got to sort of see that Catholic tradition yes. as well as the Lutheran tradition on my mom's side. And, and I was surrounded mainly by Christians, um, and so I was curious, and I used to ask my mom to take me to different churches every Sunday so I could sit in the service and see what it was all about. And, you know, I would, they would drop me off and I was an only child, so they didn't come with me. And, um, they would always try to get me to go to the Sunday school portion. I'm like, no, no, I'm good. I'm good. I'm good right here. Let me just sit and listen. And, uh, yeah. So I didn't have exposure to a real breadth of traditions outside of what I read. And I think that's why I picked up the readings from the other traditions and wanted to learn more. How old were you when you first started to go to church in this way? Seven. Amazing. That impulse yeah. at that age. I'm so impressed. Yeah. I, I don't know. I just had um from very early age, maybe because I was an only child and a lot of time on my hands mm. alone. Um, you know, just kind of deep thoughts from the beginning, you know, like, well, um, yeah, I used to take myself through different visualization practices. It led to this visualization of me thinking about, um, okay, if there's no body in this world, just me and my mom, you know, and I'd visualize that, what would that be like? Wow. And then, and then I would take mom out of the picture and I'd say, okay, what if, what if there were just me? Then what would that be like? Wow. And then I would take myself out and I'd say, if there's no me, what is there? And then I would throw the blanket off my head and go, "Ah!" you know, just who knows? I don't know. (laughs) So anyway, kind of a silly story, but I've been thinking about these things a a long time. (laughs) These things become seminal. It's just, we think we're just um, asking silly questions, but sometimes they tend, they end up being the most important ones. Um, So I'm really impressed. Um, And you continued your religious study work at at Bryn Mawr and, um, Um, you studied, uh, I remember you shared taking courses at Penn on Tibet. Yes. Yeah. I started learning Tibetan there. Um, I did my junior year abroad, um, through a program that was at the time hosted by Antioch College in Bodhgaya. And it was a, a course, a semester long study on Buddhism. And all I knew is I wanted to go to India. Uh, I didn't know why. Um, I wasn't particularly interested in becoming Buddhist, but I was super interested in India. And so I chose the program that I could learn most about and that had a good kind of academic standing. And, and that's where I first started to learn how to meditate. I'd never had any exposure. So we studied the three main schools of Buddhism 
and the meditation techniques of each, along with the philosophy and the, you know, different angles, historical angle, the languages. And yeah, that experience changed me forever. I can imagine. Wow. Mm -hmm. um, this uh, desire to go to India, did that start in college? I guess it started when I was really young. Wow. Uh, because um, my mom used to keep all my stories that I wrote as a kid. And we found some stories in a box many, many years later. I mean, this was after India. Yeah. And, um, and I guess I was writing about India when I was five or six. Amazing. Given how much of an avid reader you are, um, you must be familiar with Octavio Paz. I am. I mean, not deeply, but a little bit. Yeah. Did you by chance read that work of his uh, in light of India, De la Luz de la India? I didn't. Maybe I should. It's an amazing work. I suffered through it in Spanish. I say suffered. It just it took me a lot longer, but it's important to me as a way to maintain. Um, nice. But um, he was the ambassador from Mexico to India for a number of years in the 50s. Um, and his experiences there and how he writes about the cultural similarities Interesting. And, and the fusion and just the way also like how India is just this polyglot of these different uh, cultural backgrounds and, and mm -hmm. really different and you point out the similarities of the indigenous culture in, in Mexico and the, the fascinating game so um, yeah it's, it's brilliant work I'll have to look up that um, yeah, particular I, book I read folks like Tagore I loved the book Samskara yeah um, the thing that India I mean, it was such a profound experience on so many levels. Then the meditation on top of that and, and realizing that we each have this aspect of our own minds that has the capacity to observe its own contents and even its own capacity for awareness. Once you observe that and you see that, you can't unsee it. So true. So uh, it becomes like the superpower that yeah. we each have. Yeah, yeah, it's hard to be unenlightened. <laughs> yeah, just it's hard to unsee what you've seen. And, yeah. and just that I had just it had never occurred to me that we could choose how to relate to our thoughts and our feelings. I didn't know that was optional. <laughs> <laughs> Most of the world doesn't. <laughs> mm. <laughs> they, they remain in the dark. Um, but shortly after you graduated college, um, you made it to India and you spent quite a bit of time in, in Nepal. And I'd love yeah. to hear about the university that you founded there. Sure. So it was a big group of us, um, about 13 of us um, who came from different parts of the, the globe um, to study Buddhism. And there really wasn't a mechanism at that time to do so. This would have been in 1996. Um, I graduated from Bryn Mawr in 95. And, um, and so all I knew is I wanted to study Tibetan Buddhism. It was difficult to do that because if you didn't speak Tibetan, then, then there really wasn't a great vehicle. Um, and so uh, the teacher who I had met on my Buddhist studies program in India, his name is Chokinima Rinpoche, and he's the abbot of Kanying Shudapling Monastery in Bodhanath, in Boda, which is like a suburb of, of Kathmandu. Mm. Um, he has a big white monastery there and has for years. It was built by his parents. And um, it had always been his father's aspiration and his aspiration to have a university like the one that was created. 
And so one, one afternoon, a group of us were sitting in his kind of, um, you know, kind of area where he would give teachings. Um, and, uh, and he said, well, let's start this university. And we're like, wait, great idea. Let's do that. For the next four years, that small group of us created what has become Rangjun Yeshi Institute. For those four years, uh, I also attended courses. Um, I had to go back to the States for a period of time each year to make my money to then go back and live. Uh, yeah. um, it's one of the leading schools to study Buddhism. And it's funny, it used to be all, all of our professors needed to go to other places uh, that had bigger names. And now it's the reverse. <laughs> That's so great. Wow. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, you, you, you've reached a milestone level of success when that happens, obviously. That's, it's really extraordinary. Well, I don't claim any of it personally, other than helping to get it going. You make your way back to the States and you develop this career in, in human resources. And it dawns on me that, um, you know, people's belief systems and how they show up in the world, that was probably great questions to ask because this laboratory that you had to go into was giving you a lot of uh, oh, data or, 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 or case studies or issues around that, I bet. True, true. It's, I've had learning both ways, you know, and... Uh, um, I mentioned that I started at Booz Allen. That was my first real job. And uh, it, it was a great first job. It was during the dot-com era. And I had certain uh, MBA programs I was responsible for. And then took on more of an internal role of staffing engagement. So when work got sold, uh, determining you know who's available and from a development trajectory standpoint, what would be a good team to have on a particular engagement and then, you know, just developing consultants um, to become principals and partners. Um, and that, you know, I did that for some time right before 9-11. And I had my own kind of crucible moment um, related just to what I was going through in my life at the time. I was married to a man I met in Nepal okay. um, who grew up as a monk. I, Wow. He was not a monk when I met him, I promise. So um, he had already kind of taken a path in a different direction. My my daughter is from that marriage. Right. And um, right before 9-11, I, I left the city to go see my mom, uh, kind of related to, to some decisions I made around my marriage. And um, it's a good thing I did because my daughter was born on 9-16. Um. And she was supposed to be, um, you know, my doctor was Midtown in Manhattan. I worked at 40th and Park at the time. And uh, anyway, it was good that I wasn't there because I ended up having a C-section and that would not have worked well yeah. at that time frame. Yeah. And so I never went back to the city for years after that. I, I moved to the middle of nowhere, Wyoming, okay. where I'm from. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Wow, went back to your roots in that way. Well, that's quite a, a, a shift. Um, but I, I can understand that. Uh, I mean, I had lived in New York the five years prior to that happening. I'd left in one itself. Or no, sorry, the year prior, 2000. Um, mm -hmm. Friends who lived there um, had a very similar experience. I had a friend who worked at uh, One World Trade Center. And um, he couldn't go south of uh, Houston for a number of years. 
Yeah, uh, I'm sure that's true. All the way back to the Upper West Side after that mm -hmm. uh, happened. Um, so I can completely empathize with the decision not to go back to uh, to Manhattan and, and up for for Wyoming. But you stayed <laughs> in um, in in uh, a human resource capacity, right? I did. Um, I after Booz Allen, I worked in investment management. I spent the first two years at home with my daughter, just like I needed the time. Um, and so I went to work for Janus Capital Group, but three weeks after I was hired, they were caught up in the market timing scandal. <laughs> and, uh, uh, but I stuck with it and I, I was with them for about three years. Okay. Um, there was a bit of an economic kind of dip uh, in the middle of my time there. And I was actually laid off um, a week before giving birth to my son I'd gotten remarried. Yeah. And um, anyway, so I spent my maternity leave um, looking for a job because I, I didn't know they were going to hire me back. Mm -hmm. And so I was literally on planes and with my infant son and having interviews and having to leave the interview to go breastfeed him. And that's awkward. Mm -hmm. But anyway, it happened. It's true. And I, during that time, um, was offered a position with American Funds in San Antonio. Okay. And I, I declined the offer the first time because Janice Capital Group invited me back and it was just right. easier. And right. I, I liked the people there. Um, and ultimately I did end up joining uh, Capital Group or American Funds. Um, it was also close to the downturn of the 2008, 2009 yeah. crash. And um, they offered me an opportunity to, to, take a step outside of HR and go into the business and manage a rather large team of shareholder services representatives. So here's this religion major going through training to lead a team of shareholder services <laughs> associates. And I, I had to take those calls during the economic downturn and they were scary. That was like the scariest part of my job. So I had a newfound respect for what people do, you know, in that space. So. The psychology behind money and uh, a sense of loss of control around that is um, it's astonishing the things that people will say and do. Yeah. <laughs> well, you've had you've been in like a bird's eye seat um, for a lot of different professional groups, management consultants, money managers, and then you went into healthcare HR positions. No, you know, I find that people are people no matter which industry you're in, there were actually a lot of similarities mm -hmm. uh, bet between the types of issues that came up. And what I found uh, when I took on greater levels of responsibility and more and more senior level roles, all I can say is it wasn't really for me. I don't know if it's shocking, to, it would be shocking to you or to people in general, just um, ethics still continues to be a central issue us as humans and I um, didn't like that part of the job so much uh, because I was always going to do the right thing but it didn't always serve me well to do that yeah. and um, and so it was just I made the decision at some point where is my highest and best use and what is my passion also and so that's what really led to the shift um, and has kind of brought me to where I'm at today. My primary reason for uh, doing any of the work I do is truly just to benefit others. And at the same time, try to work on myself because uh, 
mean, I'm definite work in progress. I think we all are on some level. Yes, yes, absolutely. But, um, yeah. Well, so um, at some point in your career, you began interacting with um, uh, Davidson and, and, and Goldman and, um, and, and Goldman's son, uh, Hanuman. And yeah. Like, did that um, happen uh, prior to your leaving your HR roles? Yeah, it yeah, did. Um, share with us about how that all began. Yeah, so it was kind of a fun story. I was on my way to a leadership meeting in Phoenix when I worked for Banner Health. So they would gather up all the C-suites of the hospitals. They used to do this. And, and we'd get together and talk about the strategic priorities for the next stretch of time. And um, I was in the airport and I saw um, Dr. Davidson's book, um, on the emotional life of your brain. Which I did and purchase. And I yay! Began, I began Good. reading. I couldn't put the book down. And it dawned on me that the world needed his work and his wisdom and what he'd written about. And so that's when I reached out to him. I was shocked when I heard back. Um, <laughs> and, uh, you know, they were just, he had just started this initiative with the University of Wisconsin School of Business mm -hmm. and the Executive Education Division um, of, of basically taking his book and putting it in a format that could, uh, be shared mm -hmm. and applied, um, to the business community. And so I joined the existing effort that was underway and the small group or faculty doing this work. When I moved to Jackson Hole, I had reconnected with, um, Daniel and he had come to speak in Jackson Hole and around that same time or closely thereafter is when I got reconnected with Hanuman who I'd originally met in Nepal all those years ago. And oh, um, okay. I don't, I, yeah, he went on the same Buddhist studies program I did, but several years later. Mining our past and uh, bringing those people back into our lives in a meaningful way is, uh, I think is, phen is phenomenal. <laughs> Me too, and you never know, like seeds just get planted and, um, I know I can say for sure when we launched our first coaching certification cohort in the, in September of 2018, um, I called on everybody I knew from my life. And, you know, it was funny because at some point they all met each other and it was this big <laughs> gift because, you know, there was a room, I'll back up a little bit and say that Hanuman and I were selecting a location for our first coaching certification cohort. And there was this big kickoff where we had 50 participants coming and then 25 meta coaches. And so one of the ways that we recruited the meta coaches initially was I dipped into my path right. and I had this just really heartfelt moment of, wow, everybody, almost everybody of significance is here to yeah. support and to be part of this. It was just, it was magnificent. Like, well and, done. That's really great. Now, um, was this with the uh, Keystep Media or Brain Capital, or was this already the Goldman EI banner? Mm. This was under Keystep, and so Goldman EI was, we could say, incubated okay. uh, within Keystep Media, and Keystep Media, you know, is is still in existence. It's the gotcha. publishing company of my business partner, gotcha. and so it was it was the infrastructure of Keystep that. Um, you know, really gave birth to Goldman EI. So the managing the cohorts, the coaching certification, that has become the, the Goldman EI. 
That's right. And we have, um, you know, this online kind of the heart of all the programs is the online program I was describing to you that is sort of our best attempt at the missing link around habit change. You know, so you could go through that on its own or you could go through that with a coach. Um, the coaching certification allows people to come, become coaches and is a really like a total deep dive into becoming a coach. It's like a minimum 10 month program. Oh, wow. Okay. Yeah. And, and who do you feel are some of the best, some of the ideal participants to go through a coaching program? Wow, that's a good question. I don't know if a person can really be a good coach unless they're really willing to do their own work. And work uh, on themselves first. Yeah, definitely. Yeah. And so that that's even the design of our program. People have to get coached first yeah. in the methodology. And that's, you know, the meta coaches serve the role of doing the coaching initially. Um, and then, and then they shift gears and learn how to coach each other with this methodology. And um, so I'd say people who want to explore at a much deeper level, how the habits of their own mind may be keeping them stuck. People tend to get stuck in the same areas. Yes. <laughs> and, um, and so that gave birth to the 12 self discoveries, which is a core part of our coaching program. Oh, that's amazing. And so, you know, I often get the question in interviews, what's a sign um, what can a company or an individual expect if they have developed the eye? You know, if you can be kind and calm and clear, that's a really <laughs> good sign of developing emotional intelligence. That's brilliant. Well said. I love that. Um, I've obviously been a fan of the book for uh, a number of years. I read it at a time when I was in investment banking. You know, I, I think that the term has gotten more, much more popular as a part of our vernacular. Yeah. Um, sometimes not necessarily used in the right context. Right. Um, but, um, you know, I uh, try and, and bring some of those elements in, in teaching my, my children. Um, mm -hmm. It's really meaningful and important. I'm, I'm curious, uh, is there a role that mindfulness and meditation plays in um, uh, your program? Yes, it does. Um, and, and mainly we draw on, on the research from, from Dr. Richie Davidson. Yeah. Um, and so let me say a bit more about it in general. So first of all, about emotional intelligence, it, it, it has come to mean, to your point, a lot of things, and yet it's thrown around quite readily, the term. Yeah. Uh, but at its simplest level, and again, this is just my way of talking well, about it. I'm not I saying it's correct. But I think about it uh, really as a few key core things. It's our self-awareness, you know, our ability to be aware of our own emotions and our, the impact of those emotions on ourselves. It's the um, ability to be aware of other people's emotions and the impact that their emotions have on themselves as well as others, right? And our own emotions impact on others. So there's that social component and also self-management. You know, when we are thrown off guard or kilter, which happens so very much of the time at different levels, right? Our, we throw ourselves off, um, other people throw us off, circumstances throw us off. And when that happens, what is our knee-jerk reaction and how do we behave in those moments? And so when we develop cognitive control, we're able to create a bit of space between stimulus and response. Um, and it turns out meditation and, and different contemplative practices, we call it micro techniques, training for the brain, really make a difference in being able to create greater space 
between something happening and our reaction to that thing. Our program is really geared towards uh, that, that level of behavior change. And um, while it sounds simple, it is so hard to do. <laughs> it's exceptionally challenging, my goodness, incredibly hard, because um, we all have that, you know, our buttons always get pushed, and, and there's always certain people that just know how to do it, and sometimes it's intentional, sometimes it's inadvertently. Um, in either case, it, it doesn't help you manage your life if you're reacting to it all the time. Right. Um, because our circumstances and our conditions and our context um, are, give rise to the habits that we form to cope with those conditions. And those can vary greatly even in the same household. Mindfulness has come about rather rapidly mm. in, in, in this time frame. And it's also come to mean just like emotional intelligence, different things to different people in different contexts. But if we go back to its roots, um, in Pali and Sanskrit, um, it, it really means to recall or to recollect. That's what mindfulness is. So I see it as an aspect of self-awareness itself. The ability to remember how it is we want to show up or to remember, oh, when this person does this thing or the situation occurs and I get triggered, I'm, I'm, I'm not going to do this thing or I am going to do this thing, right? All of that comes about by virtue of us remembering in a challenging moment how it is we actually want to show up, yeah. right? That is mindfulness, attention, right? And it, it's like a, a lens on a camera. Yeah. We can either focus it or we can broaden it. Right. And both are exercises, right, that have value. Um, you know, interoception, the ability to be aware of what's happening um, on an internal physical level, how we're, how the body is manifesting what we're feeling is a very valuable skill when it comes to self-management, for example, because it allows us in that moment just simply by turning our attention and observing or naming the feeling or seeing how it's happening within our bodies takes the kind of wind out of the proverbial sail of the strength of that trigger. I've always been impressed with, you know, the people who always have, seem to have this equanimity about them or equipoise. It's just always calm. Well, thank you for your time yeah. and for yeah. having me on no, your show. Really, I love this conversation. Achieve is recorded at Subtractive and Hangar 8 at the Santa Monica Airport. Music is produced by Hennedy.